Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. So uh, welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, uh, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Frances Galt about her new book, Women's Activism Behind the Screens, Trade Unions and Gender Inequality in the British Film and Television Industries. So welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, this this is a brilliant book uh, in lots of different ways, actually. It, it's a book that I think everybody in... Uh, kind of contemporary media studies, uh, contemporary screen should he, uh, studies should be reading, but also um, it's, you know, a, a serious history book as well and has got, you know, um, a, a range of contributions across things like um, screen history, trade union history, uh, feminist history. Um, so, yeah, there, there's so much kind of going on in the book and hopefully we'll be able to give the listeners a kind of a flavour of some of the... Uh, some of the ideas that are that are in it and i guess the place to start is probably with the screen industry really and what to be sort of blunt about it like what the problem is um with gender uh, in the screen industry because the book is is very much a story of you know the kind of history of a particular kind of gendered inequality that is unfortunately still with us today yeah um so uh, I think uh, to, to begin with, uh, there's been a number of, of uh, cases which have really highlighted the continuing and, and uh, still existing problems within the film and television industries in the last few years. Um, so, and we've really seen this in terms of, of pay and in terms of, of sexual harassment and women campaigning and speaking out against this. Uh, my PhD was really bookended by, by two of these cases. Uh, in 2014, there was the Sony email leak where it revealed that Jennifer Lawrence uh, received considerably lower pay than her male co-stars on American Hustle. And this led to a number of calls um, in within, the, within Hollywood for gender uh, pay, so for equal pay, I mean. Um, and in 2017, a couple of months before I sub- submitted my thesis, there were uh, revelations about uh, allegations of sexual harassment and sexual assault uh, against Harvey Weinstein, and uh, this revealed sort of the endemic nature of sexual harassment in the film and television industries. Within British broadcasting itself, a gender equal pay uh, gender pay gap was exposed uh, in the BBC when they published a list of, of its highest earners and revealed that only a third of these highest earners um, were were women. And this sort of uh, led to, to resignations. So Carrie Gracie, uh, the China editor, um, resigned because she couldn't collude in the wage discrimination. And in 2019, Samira Ahmed successfully bought an equal pay um, claim against the BBC to Employment Tribunal. So really, there's been a lot of activism and a lot of um, cases that reveal this sort of endemic nature 
of, of gender inequality that is really, we can see throughout the history of, of the film and television industries. And there's also, you know, a number of reports and things revealing the limited number of women working as directors, uh, the sort of limitations that, that women are still in these sort of um, limited career tracks in the, in the film industry and in the television industry. So, uh, yeah, so my research look really came out of this moment of, of heightened activism and of heightened discussions of, of gender inequality in, in the screen industries. And hopefully the book um, contributes to these discussions by thinking about uh, the role that trade unions play in, in, in maintaining this inequality, but also as a, as a place to challenge this inequality. Yeah, I mean, I, I was really interested in the focus on unions for, for a lot of different reasons, actually, partially because um, the, the book has got these incredible kind of oral history uh, stories of, of these women who were, you know, leaders in, in both, you know, the kind of struggle for gender inequality, but also like, you know, leaders in their, their fields, you know, in, in terms of their um, creative uh, practice in, in, in the screen industries. But at the same time, you, you, you want to bring out, I guess, a kind of a broader context and, and a broader set of, of institutions to um, both contextualize these individual stories, but also to tell the stories of, of these industries in, in which unions have been really uh, important. And I suppose one way of getting into that is, is to maybe say a little bit about uh, the three case studies, which are kind of different unions, but also in, in, in some ways kind of um, that there's a continuity. So um, ACT, ACTT, and back to um, are the case studies. So what, why did you focus that on them and, and, and why the focus on unions? Yeah, yeah. there's a lot of acronyms. I often um, trip over these. Um, so, yeah, uh, my book focused on, on the three iterations of, of, of uh, the technicians' union. So as you mentioned, uh, the Association of Cine uh, Technicians, the ACT, the Association of Cinematograph, Television and Allied Technicians, so the ACTT, and the Broadcast and Entertainment Cinematograph and Theatre Union, which is um, BECG. And these uh, trade unions have represented the film industry and su- subsequently the television industry since 1933. Um, and there's three key reasons for my focus on, on these in, in, uh, unions. And some of them are, are practical and some of them are about the way that the union operates. So firstly, the union operated as a, as a pre-entry closed shop from the Second World War until um, 1991, when the union merges with another union, uh, when the ACTT merges with another union to form back to you. And, and uh, you know, the end of the closed shop, the pre-entry closed shop, is, is really brought about by anti-union legislation, which, which outlawed um, closed shops. And a pre-entry closed shop uh, means that you have to be employed, um, you have to have union membership to be employed in the industry. So that means that they're really playing an important role in, in regulating who gets into the industry and what roles these people perform. So the union is, is uh, sort of plays, as I said, a key role in regulating it and, and in uh, enforcing grading structures. And these grading structures um, act to limit women to certain certain roles within the industry. So women are, um, are in sort of lower paid roles on the lower end of the sort of uh, career spectrum, and they have a really limited uh, career progression opportunity, um, so or, or limited career ladder. So really, the union acts to, to keep women. Um, through through, the, through these this grading structure it, within these rules, 
Um, and, and so it plays a really important role in thinking about how gender discrimination is maintained and, um, and you know, the ways in which women's work is really um, informed by, by the trade union. Uh, secondly, the union published a, a seminal report on gender discrimination um, called The Patterns of Discrimination Against Women in the Film and Television Industries, and this came out in 1975. And this report is uh, is incredibly um, important both within the union but to the wider labour movement and to women activists. Um, and and this report quantifies the experiences of demonstrate uh, discrimination. So it's it's the first report to really set out how discrimination is um, exists. You know, with with numbers, with looking, it looks at the structures that that reinforce. Uh, discrimination both within the union, within the industry and within society uh, at large. And it outlines a number of recommendations for collective bargaining, which then sets a sort of um, outline for, for women's activism uh, going forwards. Um, so, it's, so it's a really important uh, report um, and it has, uh, as I said, significant influence outside of the union as well as inside, um, encouraging other unions to carry out similar reports. And it continued to be praised throughout the 70s and 80s for, for its um, sort of conclusions and, and things. And then finally, a more practical reason, um, I focused on, on these unions because while there are other unions in, in the industry and while these unions did represent uh, women in, in things like costume design, um, this uh, the survivor material on the ACT, ACTT and back to is, is more um, easily accessible. Um, so it offers a more coherent narrative of the relationship between women and, tr- and trade unions. We can bring that to life, uh, I think, really, really directly by um, the, uh, I guess, the kind of supplemental or um, that's not the right word, is it? Or, you know, the uh, other research method that isn't kind of archival and, and isn't about these reports, which is the oral history uh, that, that underpins the, uh, the the stories in the book. And I wonder if you could, you know, bring out a couple of, of those stories of the women who are around the original ACT uh, formation, you know, who were suffering from, um, you know, the, the gendering of skills, barriers to entry, you know, the uh, kind of collective bargaining agreements that seem to be, you know, sort of holding women's careers back. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned in the first chapter, Kay Mandler and, and Bessie Bond. Um, and, and I wonder if you could give us a flavour of the sort of uh, their experiences um, and, the way you've, you've kind of used uh, interview um, data as, as well as the archive to bring them to life. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in, uh, the, the film industry um, was unionised in, in the 1933 uh, in, in response to sort of uh, long work hours, um, sort of, uh, it was all in relation to, to changes. That, so um, the 1927 Cinematograph Act introduced legislation which resulted in, in a production boom, but this meant long hours and poor working conditions. And this process of unionization really focused on the men in the male-dominated sections of the industry. So we see that sort of um, that men are unionized um, uh, and, and focused on in, in the unionization process, which operates to exclude women. So they particularly set up the union as a craft union to begin with and and so focus on on skilled and creative workers which are very gendered um concepts 
And the gendered notion of skill is, is sort of communicated throughout the union, um, throughout the union journal, um, throughout the 30s and 40s and 50s, in, in sort of articles and advertisements that really uh, place skill on, on the work of male uh, technicians and, and, and either don't really talk about um, female technicians or have it included as sort of quite separate from it and associated with female skills. Um, and, and this is sort of consolidated in the Second World War by um, dilution agreements and things like that, where the union is focusing on unionising um, men um, to protect, protect their, their work when they're at war. So to, to introduce these agreements, which say, you know, women can only perform these jobs if they um, are earning the same wage as men. So it's really about acting as a, as a protection. Um, and in this time, um, you have Kay Manda and Bessie Bond, and, and uh, um, who have been interviewed by the uh, what is now called the British Entertainment History Project, but at the time it was the ACTT um, History Project. At the time they were interviewed uh, in the in the sort of eighties, and and Kay Manda in particular offers interesting insights into um, the the uh, into women's activity in the Second World War. So Kay Manda um, is, uh, describes herself as the first woman on the General Council um, in her interview. So she's really a very prominent uh, woman in the in the leadership of the union. Um, and, and she talks about all these um, different, this role she played in, in establishing an apprenticeship and training scheme, which again positions her, and this is in the 1930s, really positions her as, the, as, as a leading force in um in establishing uh sort of the union's structure and things although this apprenticeship and training scheme was eventually uh, unsuccessful it, it sort of yeah positions her as, as playing an important role in, in thinking about how the union is structured and in the second world war um she plays a leading role um in that she edits the, the full women's technician page in, in the union journal which reports on um agreements that are made um within the union, reports on sort of uh, everything related to women um, during the Second World War. Um, and, uh, but she's very, and she's also uh, the leader of the, the women's um, committee that is established during the Second World War. But what's really interesting about her interview is that she's very dismissive of, of the um, committee. She describes it as a, as a dead disaster and that the women didn't see the point in meeting that they would uh, meet in, in an uncomfortable room and have really vague meetings. Um, and they didn't, and, and specifically she says they're not the sort of women who wanted crushes. So she's sort of, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's dismissive of of, um, of the need for a women's committee. And this is related uh, to the sort of uh, contemporary time of the interview. So in the 1980s, uh, Manda is also uh, discussing um the ways in which she doesn't think that that um, she's not a feminist and she doesn't think that this is a particularly valuable way to, to look at things. You know, she's talking, she says that there's no difference um, and that and that if, if a woman is good, it's about who's good at a job rather than gender. But I think she offers a really interesting insight into into these thoughts and, and why, um, why she positions herself in that way because she really talks about... Um, the fact that she become, comes in this in-between period, that if she'd been uh, born earlier, she, she might have been involved in the first wave of feminist movement, of the feminist movement, or if she came later, she would be involved in the second. But by the time it came around to the second wave, she just wasn't really 
uh, interested in those demands. So I think it's really interestingly reveals the the importance of external feminist movements to to solve women's um, activism and to women's attitudes towards women's committees. And Bessie Bond is another interesting um, case study. Um, and she was the first organizer, uh, first woman organizer, sorry, of the of uh, the ACT. And she was the organizer from forty five to sixty one. And her oral history gives a really interesting insight into women's roots into these positions. So she um, started, she gained her political education, which is how she phrased it, um, in Glasgow. Um, she was a member of the Communist Party. She was involved in the Garment Union there. So she was really active, politically active um, in Glasgow when she moves to London and meets Ralph Bond, who is one of the sort of leading members of, of the ACT in the, in the 30s and 40s. Um, and um, and through her husband, she she uh, starts working for the union in a voluntary capacity, and then she begins deputising for the organiser, and then becomes an organiser herself. And she's responsible uh, to begin with for the laboratories, which uh, again she she talks about this as being you know a working class uh, base and how how she really loves the laboratories and and feels so. Um, a, a link with them, I suppose, um, and and I think that uh, what's particularly interesting again about Bond's interview is the way it gives an insight into sort of gendered women's activity. So she discusses um, when she talks about her successes that her successes are all about sort of the emotional labour side of women's activism. So she says, you know, people could come up to me with their personal problems, or people would say, uh, go speak to Be- Bessie, she can help you, and it's this. Um, and but but she doesn't emphasize the sort of negotiation successes. It's not a story about um going into union meetings and then sort of yelling and negotiating better contracts. It's very much a story about um about her relationship with other trade union members and the sort of emotional side of it. Um, and again, like like Manda Bond is a little dismissive of, of feminism as well, saying that it's sort of exaggerated and overdone. But, but she does acknowledge, uh, and again, this is in the 80s when, when a lot is happening in, in the union around um, women's equality, she does acknowledge the value of women's conferences um, because it encourages women to speak and become more active in the union. So I think that interviews reveal an interesting tension as well around sort of the feminism that they're engaged, that's happening in the 80s when the interviews are taking place and reflecting on their activism in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, when that wasn't when when there wasn't an external feminist movement sort of informing um, their activism, if that makes sense. I mean, the, the, the obvious we we have to be like quite cautious, uh, obviously, about you know sort of telling linear chronological uh, histories. But but that point you make about the changing context is really important because you know. We, we know the late 60s and, and, and into the 1970s sees the rise of, of the women's movement and, and a very different kind of feminist context. But at the same time, I was really struck, and you'd mentioned um, the uh, research and, and, and the key uh, reports um, that or report that was published um, in the 1970s um, to, to kind of make gender inequality visible. And I'm really struck by the project of, of kind of, you know, doing the research and, and bringing the, um, the issues to light, um, both in, in terms of 
Sarah Benson, who who was the author, the researcher, and, and, and you know the kind of story of of her engagement, but also the shifting kind of broader social political context and and, and the you know broader shifting uh, context of uh, feminism and, and and the women's movement in uh, film and television at the time. So so I wonder actually maybe we'll keep on on the theme of the you know the kind of stories of the key women and, and could you tell me Sarah Benson's story and and why. You know her research work was so important. Uh, yeah, um, so Sarah Benton um, becomes involved in the union because she sees an, an advertisement in in the newspaper um, for a researcher, and she emphasises how this is, is really important at the time because uh, these roles are, are sort of normally filled um, in house. You know, so the fact that they're um, advertising it um, is is a sort of sign that they're they're trying to sort of um, sort of engage with the, with the wider audience they're trying to move beyond the sort of um the the structures that have have sort of enforced gender equality i suppose um so she was appointed uh, as researcher in 1979 um and and what is really really interesting about about sarah benton is that um from the perspective of, of the union journal um, it's a really smooth process, you know. Uh, they the emotion passes, calling for a women's officer, and then she's appointed, and and uh, at the end of the year. Um, but through my research and through using uh, combining committee on equality uh, meeting minutes and oral history, um, I really revealed this um, or uncovered uh, this um, controversy around her appointment which was really, really fascinating. And it was really an exciting uh, discovery um, because um, the the Committee on Equality basically puts forward Benton as their, as their person of choice to to uh, act as the researcher. And the, the motion really emphasises that it should be a woman in this role to, to sort of avoid um, reinforcing sort of gender discrimination. Um, so, so it's, the, the, a woman should, should write this report. Um, but another union committee proposes a, a man for this uh, for this position instead. And there are a lot of sort of procedural issues around this um, in terms of the fact that he was a, a late applicant and 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 things like that. So, um, so there's a round robin circulated uh, protesting his his suggested appointment that. Um, and uh, this was signed by 80 women, mostly from the film and television industries, and is led by the London Women's Film Group, which was uh, a feminist film collective established in the 70s, which played a really significant role in establishing the Committee on Equality and in the investigation itself. So it was a really sort of important ally that um, that sort of pushed forwards um women's activism within the union um and the letter is quite matter of fact you know it points out these inconsistencies so like i said that that he was a, a late applicant um and as alongside other things um and, but the response to this round robin is incredibly hostile um and i think this particularly comes from um a concern that of external forces playing a role in in the union, you know, I think that it does come from uh, uh, concerns about about uh, the London Women's Film Group, perhaps, you know, um, influencing uh, the sort of uh, union relationship or the internal procedures of the union. Um, and and uh, the 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 man who was appointed, uh, who was suggested, even sorry, uh, writes a letter of complaint to the general secretary, Alan Sapper. 
um, sort of complaining about the impact this might have on his career, that that they've mentioned things that would uh, negatively impact his position in the union and in the industry, um, and that basically that wasn't very fair of the women to do this. And Alan Seppa responds by by essentially chastising the women. He sends a letter to 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 the women uh, who signed the um, round robin and and accuses them of of writing of the round robin of being uh, damaging, unnecessary, and unfair, and really emphasises that it's um, beyond the um, remit of the union that this is sort of um, that it's uh, not in keeping with the democratic processes of the union. So it's positioning women's activity and women's criticism of the union as beyond beyond the remit of the union. You know, it's not uh, it's it's not sort of acceptable within the structures. And um, and we see um, as well uh, there's some drafts of this letter in the archive which really uh, show the hostility even more because he use, includes words such as sort of disgust to describe his reaction to the letter which is really interesting and you see that um uh, that this letter has been edited by his secretary so that so i think that offers an interesting insight into sort of um the, the sort of internal thought process perhaps of, of the um of the general secretary and key members of the committee as well complain about the letter they say that they're appalled um they describe it as an inscur- uh, scurrilous nonsense um and 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 so um but but in response you get a lot of letters from women saying you know they're justified in complaining about this and arguing that they should be able to make such criticisms of the union and um Benton instantly talks about this when I when I interviewed Benton the first thing she talked about was this controversy it was how she opened her story about her experience in the union you know she says that she was immediately plunged into plots um about uh, that she got a phone call from from someone in the union saying you know that they wanted to appoint her but that there was this this controversy going on and she reflects that that um it was really important that it should be um, that Benton should get the role um, because she was a feminist, so she was involved in women's liberation groups in Sheffield and in in Warwick, um, and she was doing uh, research on on um, the the shop stewards movement in Sheffield in, in I think in the nineteen twenties. So she had a research background and a feminist background, but she didn't have a TV background, um, and and. She reflects that that the issue with that with her was really that um, if they appointed a feminist who didn't know much about TV, um, they wouldn't be able to produce this in her words nudge nudge piece of work, um, which which I think what she means is you know that um, it would address the the motion, it would address the call for for uh, investigation, but it wouldn't um, make a real impact you know it wouldn't challenge the union in the way it would if it was done by a feminist and she really argues that her position um, means uh, and her victory her get her appointment into the role really makes a significant impact on the response to the report um so she says you know that because they appointed a, a feminist um there was less open resistance to the report when it came out um and, and certainly, she she tells a lot of stories about the the hostility t- to the report, um, revealing sort of um, revealing that there was resistance. But but I think she makes a distinction between open hostility and this sort of um, 
masked hostility, which con- contributes to to sort of um, the the response to the report as well. You know, she she talks. I think I'm going. I think I'm not giving enough context on this point, really. But um, she she after the reports published, she her interview offers really deep and interesting insights into why the the union doesn't make advancements on the report. Um, uh, so yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean that that last point is is crucial, isn't it? That there's almost this kind of great moment of uh, of, of hope um, in, invested around the research work and, and the research report, um, even though, as you've described, you know, it's a struggle to get the right person and, and to get, you know, uh, the, the the right kind of um, particular kind of feminist sort of approach to to doing the work, and and in in, in some ways, the kind of the story is basically a story of sort of inertia really um and and i you know again as with everything we've been talking about it's hard to separate out the context of the 1980s where you know you you see the you know the kind of the decline of 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 unions and you know unions kind of social position political projects by the state and, and and the conservative government you know sort of aimed against unions the transformation of a particular kind of you know, individualist consciousness, all of this um, kinds um, of stuff. And, and, and the book really, you know, kind of gets to grips with that um, in, in quite a lot of detail. But I wonder if it might be useful, given that you've gestured towards the kind of struggles of um, the report to land and to change uh, the ACTT as was, if, if you could say a bit about back to and you know, how things maybe sort of changed, you know, you've got the example of, of back to having um, two uh, w- women uh, presidents um, and, and indeed, you know, back to being um, on the one hand, you know, a kind of a response to um, changes in the field of television and, and film production, um, changes to unions positions in society, but in some ways as well, you know, being a kind of a, like a good news story for uh, for, for women's um, kind of struggles in, in in these industries. So yeah, what what's the um, what's the back to story? What uh, difference does back to make? Uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, as you as you mentioned, um, there's sort of um, a lot of optimism in the in the seventies around around the pilots report, which is uh, sort of um, undermined or um, the, the impact of, of sort of Thatcherism and on the deregulation of the union and union legislation um, and, and things like that um, really sort of, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the best way to word this, sort of um, brings back, well, rolls back some of these advancements. You know, it makes it, uh, 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 as Lurette Lelouch um, describes, a campaign in luxury to campaign for women's issues. And when Back Two is established in the in the nineteen in nineteen ninety one, the union is in a really difficult financial position. So the union um, has merged with with another film and television industry uh, union, um, and this is something that happens sort of across the labour movement in the eighties and nineties as a strategy to um, deal with the sort of financial crisis that Thatcher's anti-union legislation has brought about in trade unions. So they have quite a significant decline in trade union membership. They have um, 
because again, um, you, that you no longer need to be a member of the union to, to work in the industry. So you, and, and they make it very complicated and difficult to recruit members as well. So there's all these, um, all these uh, things put up in the way of, of organising. And this is the context in which Bechtu is established. And Bechtu really spends the 90s in, in a financial crisis um, where they really roll back on many of the advancements that, that I, the ACTT had made in terms of, of women's demands. So you see the sort of removal of, of, of um, key uh, sort of bodies um, such as the Women's Committee becomes absorbed into a wider gender, a general even equality committee. Uh, you see um, the, the role of the equality officer being sort of uh, paired back and, and, and eventually uh, got rid of altogether or it becomes a, a role um, that is attached to other people's jobs. So it just becomes an aspect of, of other people's jobs rather than a, a role in its own. Uh, you see, um, and, and the women's conferences go and, and things like that. And then in the 2000s, there are new, new demands um, for, for women's representation. So um, so the financial crisis becomes less pressing in the 2000s, and they sort of return to talking about sort of equality policies uh, more. And... Um, and this is um, and and so one of the things that is demanded is a return to for, of the women's conference, and it's reintroduced in two thousand and three. But this is very much part of a recruitment and retention campaign to encourage women to join, because because again, um, within this context in the in the sort of two thousands, uh, women are a very important uh, demographic for um, recruiting to, to trade unions. They you know, there are more women working, and it's um, it's seen as an they're seen as an important group to to appeal to. So um, it's uh, the so the introduction of new policies comes as as part of that as part of strategies to to encourage women to be trade unionists, um, and so it sort of relaxed some of the militancy of of the nineteen seventies. Uh, where we have the, the Equality um, Committee in the 1980s, where we have sort of the introduction of, of policies uh, to, to sort of um, uh, advance women's demands. Um, and uh, and uh, Christine Bond uh, becomes president in, in 2010. Uh, so again, um, within, this, within this context of, of really... Um, uh, of, of building up the Women's Committee. And she really highlights the importance of the Women's Committee to her activism. So she talks about um, she talks about how the Women's Committee really was an important, uh, Women's Conference even, was a really important place to discuss women's activism. And in her interview and in, president, in the president columns in the journal, she really emphasises that this is incredibly valuable, that this is one of the roots of, of her activism. And she also emphasises the role of other women in, in the union. So Lynn Lloyd and Margaret Watts, who are um, key activists in the 80s um, and, in, and into the 90s and things, um, they really encouraged her to take up positions in the union. Um, so she, so she's, yeah, so I think she really positions her experience um, within a background of, of women's activism and of, of encouragement from other women. Um, 
and and I should mention, so the president is as a lay official. So they're not uh, employed by the union, but they're they're elected and they act as the chair of the national executive committee and annual conference. So it's it's a very uh, important position within the union. And Bond is president for two terms, so between 2010 and 2014. And subsequently, the role has been taken on uh, by other women. So um, so I I think in many ways she had an important sort of impact. Um, on, on this, uh, so you see sort of a shift to women holding these leadership roles, and and indeed uh, the general secretary of, of back to uh, executive prospect today is is a woman as well. So there has been a, a sort of shift in the leadership, um, and I think that some of the things that are really interesting about about Christine Bond's interview um, is that she talks about um, well she talks about the impact of of being president. Um, and, and her surprise at the, at the significance, both nationally and internationally, that this is really a visual thing, that it's important to, to visually see this, this removal of barriers, and that her, and you really see that her presidency has an impact on foregrounding women's issues within the journal, because she talks about the women's conference and women's issues, so issues around childcare and around working hours that sort of disproportionately impact women, are sort of foregrounded in her columns in a way that we don't see um, before her presidency. You know, other presidents don't uh, don't foreground these issues in the same way. Um, so she really shows a shift in this focus on, on women's issues. And she also uh, um, reflects on personal impact for her personal life, which I think really, again, uh, demonstrates the value of oral history to do in this research. You know, Bond discusses how it, it helped her through personal challenging times because it provided her with, with an external role. Um, and I think that that sort of really gives an insight into into the value of trade union activism um, for women. And we see this as well in Sandra Horne's interview. So she was interviewed for the history of uh, um, women in, in reverse film and television industries project. Um, and she was the equality officer in the 80s, and she reflects Bond's language in terms of talking about the in, enjoyment of the role, you know, that it's challenging, but that it's also rewarding, and that she experiences enjoyment of it. So I think that Bond's story is very much uh, a demonstration of the ways in which trade unions, uh, and, and I think this is a trend sort of more broadly than within uh, Back to Itself, um, than just actually even, um, but that you know uh, there's been an opening up of, of these leadership positions to women, and that this has really reflected, uh, uh, resulted in a shift in, in terms of the way women's issues are presented, but also that you really get an insight into into the personal value of, of trade union activism for women. I mean that that's a, a, a kind of concluding question that I've got. Actually, is you know what 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 do you kind of think the current situation is in in, in terms of uh, the value of, of of union activism, particularly in the, in the context of you know you, you mentioned to begin with this, um, if not reckoning, but certainly this um, you know moment of awareness of gender inequality in, in film and TV, and yet you know the kind of slightly checkered history of, of unions in addressing gender inequalities what what do you kind of think or, or maybe actually what what do you hope is going to be the uh the the role of unions um now and and, and into the future yeah um well i think that um 
uh, certainly my book reveals um, a lot of the the limitations of of, of trade of uh, that trade unions have placed on uh, campaigns against gender discrimination. But I actually think that trade unions are an incredibly important um, place to fight for women's issues. Um, and and I would draw on sort of um, Sarah Boston describes in the seventies feeling that they're a place to fight for women's issues, uh, and I think and I would hope that they that they could be seen in that way again. Um, I think that trade union that it's collective workplace activism and collective workplace organisation is really essential to challenging the um, st- the structures that enforce gender discrimination and that this should really be informed by feminist activism and by feminist sort of uh, politics and theory and things that um that these that um trade unions uh, and collective organization really are the best way to to challenge uh gender discrimination and um and that you know, um, in, in the current climate, um, with with the sort of work pressures of the sort of time pressures on on workers, and you see a lot of um, sort of these same issues that have, that are discussed in in terms of um, long work hours and and the sort of discrimination that that causes, and and people are working, of course, on on much more freelance contracts. So there's a lot of disparity in terms of where. Where people are working and, and and how easy it is to unionize, if that makes sense. Um, I think that it's it's really trade unions are really important and and bring and and challenging these sort of uh, structures and these sort of issues. So I would say that I would hope that my book sort of reveals past strategies that have been successful and reveals the the role that trade unions can play in in, in challenging gender discrimination. Um, and, and, and things, yeah. <laughs>